Good morning. How are you all doing this morning? Wasn't that a great section in there? That was a great way to start us out. Um, my name is Tim Larson, and uh, before we get into our leadership panel, why don't we just take a minute and, and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. <clears throat> thank you for the worship. Thank you for the word from Pastor Brady. Help us to be ambassadors in the marketplace. Help us to be the avenue through which your Holy Spirit can move. And as we explore leadership now in this breakout session, I pray you would just give us your wisdom and your heart. Uh, you have provided the pattern for everything that we want to grow to. And in the context of leadership, you've provided that pattern as well. Thank you for the opportunity, uh, Holy Spirit, be in our midst and deliberate with us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, first of all, uh, my name is Tim Larson. It's just an honor to be here. Uh, the opportunity to spend some time with Dan and with Will, who you'll hear from in a few minutes, has been a real blessing. And uh, I just appreciate the chance to visit about some aspects of, on leadership. Um, I was um, just a little bit about my background for some context. I was born in Montana. Was anybody else born in Montana? No. Well, that, it rarely happens that there is. So I always have to take an opportunity to see if, if, if anybody is, because we have to stick together. Uh, but I mostly grew up in the Chicago area, and uh, I, I have a Chicago Cubs t-shirt. It, it was worn a lot this last few days, but I, I am still mourning the, the Cubs 0-4 loss to the New York Mets, I don't, with all due respect to any New York Mets fans. Um, grew up in the Chicago area. Um, grew up in a Presbyterian church, and while that was meaningful to me, there was something lacking in my relationship with the Lord. Uh, my freshman year in college, I joined a Christian fellowship, was baptized in the Spirit, and got pretty active. Uh, the last year uh, of college, actually the, the year before I graduated, about 100 families moved from Chicago to Louisville, Kentucky. So when I graduated from college, I felt like God was calling me there, and so I went and joined a public accounting firm and um, spent about four years there as a CPA and then left and went to an investment banking firm. The, the difference, and I, this, is not, uh, this is not a pat on the back about public accounting, nor is it an indictment of investment banking, but the difference in the lifestyle in those two offices was extremely different. Uh, we had an affair in the investment banking office, and uh, it, just, it was a real challenge. It wasn't Christ-centered uh, in the public accounting practice. The partner was family-oriented. He was Christian, knew my family, knew the group. And so being able to live a Christ-centered life was much easier um, in the accounting firm. Well, one night we had a closing dinner, and my wife and I were there, as well as the two people that were involved in an affair and their spouses. And it was a great dinner, but the tension in that uh, place was palpable. Um, we left and got into the car, and my wife, through her tears, just said, I, I know you worked a long time at the accounting firm, but they were family-oriented. You know, we knew they were Christians. And it's, just, it's just tough. So we talked through that some, and long story short, God got me out of that particular position I moved back to the accounting firm that I'd been with, and we moved to Dallas, Texas. 
And uh, so the first principle of leadership is pay attention to your wife. <clears throat> and once you do that, I mean, everything else should be, yeah, not a problem. I'm convinced that one of the most important aspects of any business is its people. Um, those of you that have read management books, leadership books, you've heard that. People are the most significant aspect of any business. And the public accounting business, it's, uh, it's even more so. They manufacture the inventory, that is the hours that are billed to clients. They prepare all the work, their quality of review, they determine whether or not clients are going to give referrals, whether clients are happy. Uh, it, it's completely based on the people that are in the firm. And that's the case, I think, for any service business. Um, so it's probably not a surprise that when I thought about leadership and Gabe said, would you spend some time just visiting about your perspective, people are what came to my mind. And so there are a few principles that I thought might be helpful. They're not rocket science. You've all lived these. But I thought from, um, from the standpoint of getting us started this morning, it might be worth spending some time talking about some people principles. Uh, the first one is commit to coach. Um, coaching is something that, that is so important to all of us that deal with people. Um, a number of years ago, I had a senior manager that I wanted to bring to a presentation with me. We were making a recommendation to a client on a pretty significant restructuring. And this particular senior manager had been involved in the development of the idea. And we had already met with uh, the chief financial officer. So this was going to be an opportunity to go to a board. We had the CEO, we had general counsel, a couple of other uh, of their management team. We get started into the presentation and he starts using the term whatnot. And I'm, I always pay attention to what people are saying, but, but whatnot caught me by surprise a little bit. Well, over the next few minutes, he said whatnot, I, I don't know, a dozen times. It was highly distracting. We finish up the meeting, we get in the car, we're headed back to the office, and I said, hey, can I share something with you? And I thought about, do I do this or not? Or, and I, I, I have to. And I said, you know, you used whatnot a number of times, and it was really distracting. Over the course of the next couple minutes, as he got sort of defensive, saying, well, I, you know, I don't know, no, I, did, I could He used whatnot so many times, his tongue got tied. He couldn't, he couldn't not say it. And I got to the point where we were, we were laughing about it. Uh, so I suggested a couple of things. You might try to break this habit. We got back to the office. I didn't really think anything more about it. Two days later, he came back and uh, sat down in my office and he said, Tim, he said, I appreciate so much your willingness to take the time to tell me that. Nobody's ever told me that. And I thought, well, that's great. We talked through it. I, I appreciated his coming to speak with me about it. But after that, anytime that I felt like I didn't have enough time to coach, or maybe it wasn't my place, or somebody else is this person's counselor. I always remembered that experience and thought, the time that you take to coach someone will pay uh, dividends to you. And in fact, their appreciation for that, if their heart is right, will be significant. So always take the opportunity, if, if God's quickened something in you about someone else's performance that's working on your staff, take the time to coach. And Jesus is our best coach. I wanted to take a look at uh, what he did in Luke 10, 4 to 11. So uh, let me give you some background. So the Lord appointed 72 that were going to go into the towns where Jesus was going to be going. 
And so he gives them some coaching and some instruction. Uh, in verse 4, do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you, heal the sick who are there, and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its street and say, even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet, we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. What struck me about that is he described for these 72 followers what they should do. He gave that instruction. He said, well, if this happens, here should be, this is what your response ought to be. And then he said, well, but, you know, it may not be that you're accepted. It may be that you're rejected, in which case this is the kind of response that you should have. So isn't that great coaching that, that Jesus gives the instruction and anticipates the different aspects that might occur and then a response that would be appropriate. Okay, the second principle that I wanted to deal with is dare to delegate. Um, again, in a service business, delegation is key, and that was always hard for me. Not delegation in terms of dealing with teams of people that would execute on a project, but the more critical things, senior relationships with clients, um, more significant uh, documents that we would be issuing, things that would be, that I felt would be uh, extremely important, strategic. So in those areas, it was hard for me sometimes to say, okay, well, I, I want somebody else to come in and do this and I'll step back. And I, I had a um, senior manager one time that said, you know, he came into my office, he was very good, very aggressive, and he said, basically, I want your job. And the questions that he was asking were, well, what can I do to be you? How do I, how do I move from managing at this level to, to leading at a different level and having the senior client relationships and those kinds of things? So we talked through it and I gave him some ideas, but it's been amazing to me as I've had opportunity to delegate to those uh, managers that are moving up that you can tell um, uh, are bright, competent, eager for that responsibility, what they've been able to accomplish. So the scripture that I want to take a look at uh, that addresses delegation is in Exodus. And this is when uh, Moses' father-in-law Jethro is coming to him. Many of you are familiar with it. Um, so they're in the wilderness and Moses is spending all of his time dealing with all the disputes that are coming up to him, right? So in Exodus, uh, let's see, 18, in verse 14, when his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses answered him, because the people come to me seeking God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it's brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and laws. Moses' father-in-law replied, what you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me and I will give you some advice. 
and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them decrees and laws, show them the way to live and the duties they are to perform, but select capable men, uh, let's see, from all of the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring difficult cases to you, the simple cases they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you if you do this and God so commands. You'll be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. Well, I called this dare to, to delegate. Another principle that seemed to me that might be applicable is listen to your father-in-law. So for those to whom that may be applicable, I'll, I'll leave that with you. Uh, but several things struck me. Moses took and embraced that guidance very quickly and decided I, that sounds good and I will delegate as he's described. The other thing that struck me, and this isn't so applicable today in uh, I think our, our work, but years ago, if you were working, you had to be away from home and th there weren't laptops. And so I, I have uh, a lot of instances where I would be at the office and that's where I worked. Well, the opportunity to go home and go home satisfied just struck me as something that was powerful. Um, my coaching and my delegation didn't have the scale of Moses nor the impact of Jesus, but it has always been amazing to me if you do step out and are uh, hearing God on who you coach and who you delegate, um, if people step up, you might be surprised at what they would be able to accomplish. So the last principle that I wanted to address uh, is expect excellence. Um, I have been somewhat of a fanatic about that. And people have said in upward feedback and, uh, or 360 feedback maybe that you've um, been involved with, you've participated in something like that. But I would hear, Tim, you're more involved at a detailed level than others uh, that we work with. To me, uh, we have a high standard of excellence that we need to maintain, not only because clients expect it and, and that's something that we need to do, from a secular perspective, God calls us to that. Christ calls us to be excellent in everything that we do. And it has always been something that I, I, has helped me. Why, why is it that we want to be, um, uh, have that high standard and have that excellence? And uh, a scripture there that I wanted to point out was 1 Corinthians 10, 31. You've all heard this. So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And that, from my perspective, in terms of the business that I've been involved with, goes not only for me, but for everybody that, that works for me as well. Uh, with that, I think I'm going to turn it over to Dan, right? Okay. And Thanks, we'll Dan. visit. Yep. So I'm Dan York, and it's an uh, honor to be with you this morning. And I'm going to title my part, Why Discipline is Essential to Successful Leadership. Have you ever asked yourself the question, why do so many leaders seem to bite the dust with moral failure? Why do so many leaders at the pinnacle of success crash and burn? Why do leaders get fired for being inept? Why do leaders exhibit bad attitudes and fail to play well with others? Why do leaders make resolutions only to fail to carry them out, yet expect their subordinates to do what they can't do? 
Now, I'm going to guess while I'm asking those questions, some of you are having images of leaders pop in your head that maybe fit some of those questions. The more I think about those questions and the more I interact with other leaders, the more convinced I am of the importance of discipline. In fact, I'm going to make a statement to you this morning that I don't think you can be a successful leader without discipline. If you don't have discipline in your life at some point in time, you'll be ratted out. And it'll be an internal ratting. And probably an external ratting too. So I'd like to talk about that. Now in the Army, which is my background, 34 years, if a soldier fails to pass a physical fitness test, what do you think happens? They're flagged, all right? Must be a military guy. Hua. So flagged means that their record is, that their record is taken and they have a mark on their record that says they have failed a PT test and you cannot get any promotions, you can't get awards, nothing favorable can happen to you while you're under a flag. What happens if that soldier fails a PT test, a physical fitness test twice? They're gone. In other words, they lose their job. So if they can't run a two mile in their correct amount of time, if they can't do a certain amount of push-ups and a certain amount of sit-ups in a two minute time frame, they're gone. They're out. They've lost their job. So if the military gets this, because obviously the military understands you don't want somebody who's out of shape in combat. Make sense? Not a good thing. Why don't we as Christians understand how important discipline is? Because we face a far more dangerous enemy than the enemy that soldiers face on the battlefield. We face a roaring lion who would love to rip out our souls and uh, kill us for all eternity. So what are some examples where a lack of discipline comes back to haunt us? And I'll throw out a word morally. What are some examples where we fall morally because of a lack of discipline? What pops in your mind? Pornography. Sexual sins. Exactly. Anything else? How about gambling? How about, not probably applicable for this room, but compulsive shopping? <laughs> Laziness. All right? Physically, lack of discipline, where does that come to play? How about drug addictions? Alcohol? How about internet games? Videos? Do you know that there are people that have died because they could not stop playing internet games? I mean, that's incredible. How about lack of rest? How about overeating? Failure to exercise. Okay, how about emotionally? What are some where areas where lack of discipline comes to roost? Anger. Absolutely. What else? Fear. Anxiety. How about bitterness? Selfishness. How about not forgiving? All areas that can uh, literally kill us. So the dictionary gives us some pretty helpful thoughts on discipline. And I'm going to look at some of these definitions and then we're going to drill down. And then uh, Will's going to smack me when I've gone over time because we're a tight team. Excuse me. I was in the military. Anybody else in this room who's ever been in the military knows I wouldn't come 
near smacking a major general, don't you? <laughs> See, that's a shame. I'm empowering you. So definition number one, training to act in accordance with rules. This is discipline now. Training to act in accordance with rules. Another close definition, definition number five, says behavior in accordance with rules of conduct, behavior and order maintained by training and control. Great leaders don't rebel against rules and authority, but they also aren't blind followers. Make sense? Good order and behavior come about by protecting both our attitude and our character by living in accordance with established rules. The Bible, for example, gives us clear laws. What are they? Ten Commandments? Uh, Jesus gave great moral instruction. What was his famous sermon called? Yeah, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. These help us negotiate life, but they're rules. When we live by God's rules, we set ourselves up for constant success. The reason so many leaders fail, in, in my opinion, is that they reach a point where they pridefully believe the rules don't no longer apply to them. I, uh, this isn't in my notes, but it just popped in my head, so I'm going to share it. I was going through a preaching class in seminary, and I thought the professor was incredibly dry. And preaching shouldn't be dry. And it was, he was incredibly dry. And he didn't seem to take any personal interest in us, like Tim alluded to earlier. There was no mentoring. It almost just seemed like he was going through the, the motions. You know what we found out? He pastored the largest church in San Diego. You know what we found out? He was having an affair. He was teaching a preaching class while he was having an affair, let alone leading his church. And he completely left the ministry with his spouse. How does a guy who knows the Bible think suddenly that he's entitled to go completely astray? and even leave the faith. There was a general in the army who was nominated to be the inspector general. The inspector general is the one job in the military where you're supposed to make sure everybody else is following the rules. So the fact that he was nominated to be the inspector general meant that a lot of people felt like he was a pretty ethical guy. Now he was serving in Korea. He didn't get the job. A Korean businessman gave him like $3,000 in uh, money, gave him a watch that was worth lots and lots of money, a briefcase worth lots and lots of money, and it came out in an investigation. And so they asked this guy, well, why, why did you take these gifts? You know that's illegal. We're not allowed to take gifts in the military. I cannot take a gift over $25 as a leader. I'm not allowed to. It's, it's unethical because of, of persuasion and coercion and influence. So why was this guy doing that? You know what he told the investigators? He said, well, uh, he was a personal friend. Now, if it's a personal friend, you can take gifts. He was a personal friend, and, and he was just giving me some gifts to thank me for my service. Well, so the CID went and investigated the Korean, and he couldn't speak English. <laughs> Amen. So... You know, running red lights. I've noticed since moving to Oregon that Colorado has a rash of people that like to run red lights. I thought they did it in Oregon, but it's a science here. Or it was a science in Oregon, it's an art here. <laughs> it is scary to cross lights here if you don't pay attention. It's a lack of discipline, but the cost of that lack of discipline could be somebody dying. 
Definition number two, activity, exercise, or regimen that develops or improves a skill. Training. May I suggest two activities that set every leader up for success? Number one, spending time hearing, reading, studying, memorizing, meditating on what? The Word of God, Scripture. This is one of the best activities, exercises that you and I can do. And I, I remember that same seminary, I was in a Greek class and there was a discussion about reading our Bibles every day. And a percentage of the class thought that that was too legalistic and there was absolutely no reason why you should read your Bible every day. And I thought, how absurd. I didn't say it out loud. How absurd. Would you go through your week and think that only going to church once a week is sufficient spiritual food? If you only listen to Pastor Brady and that's all you do all week and that's your spiritual food? If you did that physically with real food, what would happen? You'd look like the flying nun, only emaciated. It wouldn't work and you'd die. We have to feed more frequently than once a week and most of us understand that. But we don't do it out of legalism. I don't read my Bible because it's, it's something I have to do. I read it because I want to do it, because I want to know my Savior and my God more. Amen? Amen? So I think that's a huge, important piece. And the second is developing a regular time to communicate with our Heavenly Father. I've noticed that every time in my life where I've emphasized prayer, I've I have a closer relationship with God and I see amazing things happen that certainly weren't happening before. So I think reading our Bible and prayer are two key things. From the time that I was a child, and so this is how, my, how I grew up. My dad was a Marine. Got out of the Marines and, and joined an organization called the Navigators. And so I grew up overseas as a Navigator kid, as a missionary kid, kind of grew up all around the world. But every day, to include this morning, at 4.30 probably this morning, 4.30 or 5, Dad got up. And guess what he's doing? 83 years old. He's reading his Bible. And next to his little table, he has a journal. And he's writing in his prayer journal. By the way, if I have questions about my childhood, all I have to do is ask him, and he looks them up and tells me. He can tell me my run times as a cross-country runner in high school. Why? Because he journals. And then he spends time in prayer. Every morning... That example was fantastic for me to look at and to observe because what I found is that the more I read my Bible, and I, I would guess today I've probably read my Bible cover to cover more than 30 times. Why? Because I love it and because it's teaching me about God and, and God brings to mind scripture that I need as a leader to better lead soldiers. So, I want to demonstrate this real quick for you. Something pretty fun. Pick a topic. Any topic. Scriptural. <laughs> I mean, we could talk about the Green Bay Packers if you want, but yeah. Marriage. Okay. So, if I, if I take my Bible, we already talked about laws and a great sermon. So where's a logical place I can go to get instruction on marriage? Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus talks about what? Divorce? Okay? So that's an easy one. I can also go to Paul, and Paul talks about 
all kinds of things about marriage. Give me another one. Money, okay? Um, so John chapter 19, I just happened to be there, verse 24. So, so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who get it, gets it. They cast lots for Jesus' clothing. Uh, sort of a money issue, if you think about it. I keep flipping through scripture and... Uh, Matthew 27, 3. Then Judas' betrayer, seeing that he'd been condemned, was full of remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. Give me another topic. Serving, okay? When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his robe, he reclined again and said to them, Do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord. This is well said. For I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. It's a great passage on, on serving. John 13. Another topic. Leadership. Okay? John chapter 12, 42. Nevertheless, many did not believe in him, even among the rulers. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess this, so they would not be banned from the synagogues. Christian rulers, supposedly, in this case Jewish leaders, bad effect. Uh, John chapter 13, I'm right there, uh, verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands. He had come from God and that he was going back to God. Who's the leader? God, right? So I can flip through, and I'm going to show you this. Pastors study in seminary, and that's extremely important, but no pastor wants you to be dependent upon him because we're not Catholics. That was the Catholic tradition, that you be dependent upon the priest. That's not our tradition. Our tradition is to, to be dependent upon what or whom? The Holy Spirit, right? And so you want to know your word and you want to have it down tight because God will use it powerfully. Okay? Third definition, punishment inflicted, inflicted by way of correction and training. When I was about nine years old, I uh, put a pillow over my sister and tried to smother her. Not to kill her, just having fun. You know, I was a kid. I lied to my stepmother. Uh, she, knew, she knew I was up to something, and I lied. And so she was very smart, and she waited till my dad got home. My dad took me into a room, sat me down on his bed, pulled his belt off, and I thought, holy cow. He'd never pulled his belt off on me before in nine years. I mean, I'd had lots of spankings, but never a belt. And then he did something peculiar. He took his shirt off. And then he knelt down by the bed, and he handed me the belt, and he said, hit me. Oh, my lands. You know what you said about not hitting me? Well, magnify that about tenfold. I, I was not about to hit my dad. And I started bawling. And he said, no, hit me. And he made me hit him because he was a Marine. That was the worst punishment I've ever received in my life. And it taught me an important lesson about not lying. And I got it. You see, he took my punishment for me. Why? Because he'd been reading the Bible and he, he knew about this person called Jesus who took our punishment pretty awesome. 
We need people in our lives who will hold us accountable. We need people who will take their shirt off and hand us the belt and say, hit me. If you want to be a great leader, you've got to be disciplined enough to have friends in your life that can speak to you. As Tim was talking about in the area of coaching is one great example. But you've got to let people speak to you because if you don't, you're in danger. And I'm in danger. Last definition is the rigor of training. The rigor of training effective experience in adversity. Pastor Brady talked about this this morning, so I don't really need to go there because you already heard it. Times are going to get worse. They're going to get bad. Great leaders use discipline as the master of preparation. Discipline thrives when those who are indisciplined wilt and wither beneath the crush of pain and opposition. Discipline rides experience and uses it to its advantage. It presses forth victory out of the seeds of defeat setbacks and grief. Discipline is not afraid of the unknown, change, or threats because it's already weathered each of them and grown stronger in the process. In plain words, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. When we strive to put Christ first, we're set up to deal with adversity and we thrive. You know, I'm, I'm 56 years old. I'll be 57 in a few days. And I will tell you, moving to Colorado has not been easy physically. Uh, there was a lot more air in Oregon. <laughs> and I don't know who stole the air here, but when I go out and I try to run two miles, it's hard. And I'm not near as fast. But I could take two attitudes. I could say, Colorado sucks. And I could give up, couldn't I? Or I could do the right thing, and that is work at it. And the more I work at it, the better I do. And I think that's what Jesus, I don't think I know that's what Jesus expects of us. He expects us to go out and run, amen? He expects us to, to try and find that air that somebody took and to grow stronger because that's how we get through adversity. I would encourage you not to try to get through life on your own. If you think you're a leader and you can do it by yourself, you're sadly in for a great fall and it won't work. Let me leave you with this thought. This book of instruction must not depart from your mouth. You're to recite it day and night so that you may carefully observe everything written in it. For then you will prosper and succeed in everything you do. Who wrote it? Great man by the name of Joshua. Book of Joshua, chapter 1, verse 8. Great words to live by. I yield the floor to Will. Thank you, both of you. Uh, diverting for a second, by the way, let me know if I need the microphone. I prefer the intimacy over the amplification if I can get away with it. But uh, speak of stealing the air, if you follow football, some group in New England is reported to a <laughs> 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 give you a So you'll know a little bit about who's sharing with you and then when it comes to Q&A, which we're leading into, who, you're, who you might be talking with. Um, I'm a Colorado, Lakewood High School, CU Boulder. Went back to Boston, got my MBA from Harvard. 30 years in Silicon Valley, where I had the opportunity to run some companies you would clearly have heard of, and some companies not only not heard of, but I guarantee you 
you'll never hear of <laughs> And along the way in these decades, I've learned to ask and answer certain questions, and I'm wondering as I go along if you've asked and answered similar questions. Uh, and a lot of the times, the asking is more important than just the answer, because you'll never get a good answer to a question you don't ask. Question one, who are you serving, and who are you expecting to serve you? And if you want to get the answer to that, you can look in your heart, but if you want the real answer, ask the people around you that question. Who am I serving? Or who do you think I'm expecting to have served me? Uh, for the recording, <laughs> posterity. Uh, another question is who is your audience? Who are you playing to? Are you playing to yourself? Are you playing to the women? Are you playing to your employees, shareholders, customers? Or is your audience one entity? God. There are some answers, there are some questions where there's no answer. I think there's a, that's a question where there is an answer. Another one is, does it feel good to be the smartest person in the room? In school, it might feel really good to be the smartest person in the room. But if you're in a work environment, if you're in an environment where you need to get something done, or if you're in a team environment, and you're the smartest person in the room, I would posit that you're in the wrong room. Another question. Who gets the credit? We're not going to talk about who gets the blame when things get hosed up, right? But who gets the credit when something goes right? I remember for a long time I'd come back from work and talk about something that I thought that I had done, something I had drug across the finish line. And my wife would say, praise God. I was expecting, oh, my hero, you're so wonderful. <laughs> and I got, praise God. And after a while, I asked myself, I mean, this, this went on for a long time. And I eventually said to myself and out loud, well, wait a minute, what am I, chopped liver? And the answer is, yes. <laughs> and in those two words, my wife taught me a great lesson. Praise God. Whatever it is I do wrong, it's on me. Whatever it is that I do that's right, that I drag across the finish line, is on him. Here's another fun question. Is it good to be indispensable? At home, I want to be indispensable. I want to be able to fill the requirement for one each husband and one each father and be indispensable at home. At work, I would say the last thing you want to be is indispensable. You can't grow, your company can't grow. Your enterprise, your volunteer group can't grow if you're indispensable in your current position. Another one, two more. Does the possibility of your employees leaving because they've been really well trained internally and externally, leaving because they've been stolen by the competition, cause you to not invest fully in them? 
conversation between a chief financial, chief financial officer and a CEO, chief executive officer. CFO says, wow, why are we spending all these money on these people? What if they leave? CEO says, what if they don't? Richard Branson, Virgin Records, Virgin Airlines, spaceships, all sorts of things, teaches it really well. Train your people so that all your competition want them. Treat them so they won't go. Last one, last question. Other people rely on you, family, coworkers, employees, friends. They rely on you for advice, encouragement, uplifting, battery recharging. Where do you go? For that? Or are you a man of steel? Are you immortal? Where do you go for your encouragement? Where do you go when you're dragging? Where do you go to get your battery recharged? Because if you have no place to go, you will very quickly have nothing to give. In case you don't know, it's your turn. This is Q&A. Don't leave us hanging. No lunch before lots of questions. Here's a question. Yeah, so the question is, as we get older, does it get harder to be disciplined? And, and I think that I, I'm going to give you a yes and a no. If something's become a habit, it becomes easier. So, for example, for me to read my Bible every day is easy because it's a habit. So it, it's just ingrained, and, and therefore I, I go down that route. If it's trying to do something that's not norm normative or normal, then I think it's harder uh, as we're older. Another example, uh, any of you have this disease where it's harder and harder to remember people's names as you get older? <laughs> I have that disease and, and I'm trying, I've gone through courses on how to memorize people's names and remember them, but I'm telling you, it's harder for me to remember names today. So I, I think yes, in some, in some areas it is harder. Uh, because of the natural process of decay that takes place in our, in our minds and our bodies. I'm convinced of two things. Gravity is stronger as you get older, and time goes faster. I can't prove either of those principles, but they sure feel true. Would you like to address that too? You want to take that? That's right up your alley. Well, um, I tell them. Uh, one of the things that we always got in feedback from people was they wanted to spend time with the senior leadership of the firm. And 
the other aspect of that was we, we would focus on expressing our, our appreciation for what a team did. Uh, we do that usually through spending time. I would have two choices when we'd wrap up a, a major project where we'd have a team involved for some time. Uh, one was just rush right on to the next project because that, that frequently that team will sort of come apart and get reoriented into other teams. Um, but the other option would be, hey, pull the team together. Let's go out, spend an afternoon together, and, and just let them know. I appreciated what you did. I appreciated the commitment that you made. Maybe they worked some late nights. And so just ex expressing that uh, was something that we found was meaningful. And when, uh, when we'd get the response, people that would leave, because in our business, people leave all the time. When we, when we would say, well, why would you invest in people? It, well, because they'll be our clients if they leave. So we need to in invest in them. We need to treat them well. But if there was something that wasn't quite right and somebody would leave, a lot of times it'd be because, well, I didn't feel connected to the firm. I didn't feel connected to leadership. So, so to me, spending the time and e expressing it and communicating it to them was important. You know, Pastor Brady showed an example of that this morning. He emphasized and recognized his mentor and publicly praised him. And then he publicly praised Gabe, and then Gabe publicly praised him. Did you notice that? That was awesome, because what that does is that's so affirming, and then you feel like, wow, I, you know, I'm valued, I'm part of this team. I, I think publicly recognition is important. I, I really stink at this with my wife. It's something I gotta constantly work on. I, I constant because it's easy to find things to pick out that aren't necessarily correct. It's much harder to say, you know, honey, you rock the planet. You are such a babe. Thank you for that awesome meal. You know, it's just it's that recognition, and I think that we all crave it as people. Another thing to to add. Uh, remember that nobody, an employee, a friend. Uh, exists on this planet alone. And one of the things that I learned after a while was that if you have an employee you want to honor, see if you can honor that person in front of their spouse or their family. Because that really pays dividends. And if you have an employee working long hours, Tim, as you mentioned, you know, send some things. Send a coupon for dinner to home to the spouse and have the spouse invite the employee out and say thank you to the spouse because we know that it isn't just, in this case, your husband working these long hours. You're working those long hours with your husband because you're taking care of the house and the kids and so on. So remember that they have people that they want to look good in front of. Sir. I'll give a quick thought and then turn it over. Oh, I'm sorry, the question was, how do you treat somebody who's an underachiever and doesn't seem to be caring to pull on the rope? Doesn't have a work ethic. Right. Not owning up to what they should be doing. Where I would, I would start would be to talk with the person and say, what are your goals, where do you want to go? Because if it turns out they don't want to go anywhere, I can guarantee you they're going to get there, and they're going to help you in your and they're going to help you in your company get there. But I would start out with, 
where are you going? And if they have some place to get to, then you have some pl something to work with. But if they don't have any place to get to and you can't help them find one, I don't have. That's where I would start. What? That's right. That would, right. that would happen quite a bit in our, in our business. And we, I mean, not quite a bit. We, you know, you hire the best people that you can and, and uh, uh, more often than not, that works out. But we, we had a pretty clear orientation around your responsibility is going to continue to grow, your performance is going to continue to develop. If it wouldn't, then you'd be going off to a competitor, going off to industry, something like that. But we, we had a pretty clear plan. Again, it comes back to communication. So sit down with that person and, and let them know. Because uh, I, I would always react negatively if somebody, another partner said, well, have you heard about so-and-so? Because those kinds of discussions would, would always happen. And you know, we might talk about it. And I said, well, have you talked with so-and-so? Do they know what, whatever the issue is? And um, while I, I'd, I'd like to say, well, every time the answer was yes, it wasn't. And so, so then my reaction was, well, how can, you, how, how can you have any expectation other than the same, the same kind of thing is going to happen? Um, so communicate, and then the, and then the second thing, what, what we would do is, is we'd actually communicate. If there was an issue that continued, we would communicate what, what we call the personal development plan. And, and essentially that was, you're either going to have this period of time that's set, and we're going to communicate what that is, and there's going to be a degree of accountability after which you will have either achieved those specific things that are in that uh, PDP, or an acronym, um, or not, in which case we'd love to help you find another position. I, I've talked with a number of people that have left the firm, and, and um, my view was always it's not a negative thing. Now, if, if, if it's a work ethic question, that may be more of a struggle, but we have a lot of people that just, I don't want to put in the time, I don't, I don't really have all the skill set. And so I, I, my interest was always, I, I want to help people find their destiny. I mean, from a Christian perspective, we want to reach our destiny in Christ, right? Um, from a business perspective, I want people to find their destiny. And in fact, it may, may not be with our firm. So uh, those are a few aspects of it as well. I think that's a, a pretty good question. And, and just one thing I would add is I, I really think that it's important to understand context. Where is the per person at in their life? Just a quick example. There was a, uh, a general officer who was destined for greatness who suddenly became substandard in performance and wasn't motivated. And uh, bosses did all they could to carry this guy, but it, finally they had to, to, uh, to terminate him at the rank he was at. He wasn't going to get promoted. You know what? They found out he had an abscess, a tooth problem. And it literally affected everything about his ability to perform. And so that's an outlier. That's an extreme but I think we need to know the context. So sitting down and asking a person, is everything okay in your life, is a really important question because I don't think anybody is unmotivated uh, because they're motivated. They're unmotivated because something's wrong. And so the context is what's wrong? What, what's going on in their life that, that's causing the problem? And then the other piece is here's a great tool for you as leaders, Strength Finders 2.0. Okay? Any of you heard of that? Go on the internet, look up Strength Finders 2.0, www. 
and you take a, you, you buy it, you, you buy a code, and you take about 165 question questionnaire, and it spits out your five strengths. Every organization that I've commanded, I've made my employees all take that. In fact, I made my family take it too, because it's pretty cool. Because what you find out is what people's strengths are. Let's say you've got a person who is an accountant type, and you've got them in uh, R&D. You know, who wants to be designing stuff and, and be in, an, in a think tank where creativity is the norm, when you want, you know, you want what's laid out in front of you and clear and numerical and makes sense and, and is orderly, right? So I could see why an accountant might be pretty unmotivated in an R&D uh, section. So Strength Finders helps you place people where they're strong. People don't want to be where they're weak. So I, I just, I think that's important. You had a question in the back. Yes, sir. Yeah, that, that's a, another great question. Uh, well, obviously, one-on-one, -on -one, you can go back to the coaching and you can share things personal. Uh, you probably don't want to share personal observations that are negative about a person in a group. That doesn't go over real well. So you can, you can go deeper one-on-one -on -one, uh, with an employee and, and obviously know them far greater than you can in a group. The advantages in a group, though, are you're going to get more ideas and, and probably more um, energy to some extent. So it's, it's just a different animal, and, and so you treat the animal appropriately. Uh, I don't know if that's answering your question, but that, that's what comes to my mind. Any other Tip O'Neill, politician, once famously said, all politics is local. I think when you come down to it, all leadership is one-on-one. -on -one. Because if you're leading a group, that group had better believe in you as a person and better believe that they have your interests one-on-one -on -one at heart. Ever been in a sermon where you felt like the preacher was talking to you one-on-one? -on -one? Might have been a thousand people in the room. So I would posit that all leadership in varying degrees is really one-on-one. -on -one. That's good. One more question? Yeah. think that uh, the Atlanta Braves fan may have successfully played Stump the Stars. Um, how do you get people to embrace change? To, to me, how do you get people to embrace anything? Is to find out where they want to go and show them where you're going, where the group is going, is a way to get them there. And that often uh, requires change. And change is scary, but change is the only thing, by definition, that changes anything. I mean, no need to take notes here, but if something's going to change, something has to change, right? Whether that's personally or in a group, in our church, in the country, change is the only thing that changes anything. But you have to find out where they want to go and show them how the direction the change is going in will get them there. Because nobody is interested in what you care about. They're only interested 
in themselves. And everybody you're talking to is playing a tape in their mind. What's in it for me? What's in it for me? What's in it for me? And if you're not speaking to that tape, nothing. So there's a great book called Who Moved My Cheese? <laughs> and that's probably the classic book on change. Uh, but here's how I would answer that. So, because uh, I, I just lived this the last three years. I, I inherited an organization that had no purpose, literally. They, didn't, they really had no identity, uh, didn't know where they wanted to go, uh, and didn't want anybody taking them anywhere. And there was a lot of toxicity in the environment. And so I recognize, I, first thing I need to do is I need to study the organization. The only reason you ever want change is if you're trying to get your organization to a better place, right? Otherwise, if it's not broken, you know, why fix it? So the, the, the first thing I think you do with change is, is you have to legitimize the need for change. And that's called vision. And so you look, where does my organization need to go? Where does my family need to go? Where do I need to go personally? All right? And then once you've identified that, in my house, my wife is change resistant. And so is my oldest son. They don't like change. Change is my middle name. I love change. I think change is healthy. So what I have to realize is that my core values and my modus operandi is different than my wife, who's very analytical and deliberate. So the first thing I need to do is I need to convince her why the change is important. And you gotta do that with anybody, right? And so that means taking the time to share, here's why we need to move from Oregon to Colorado. I really have thought this out. I'm not flying by the seat of my pants. And then we talk about it. And there may be tears and there may be resistance. That's not unusual. But just because someone is opposed to change does not make them the bad guy, the bad guy right? It just means we've got to work through the process. Once my wife understands where I'm trying to get us as a family, and I repeat the message frequently, because if you're an idea person, a deliberate person knows that you're not serious if the idea changes. So you have to stick with it. So you stick with it. And then she sees, okay, he's really serious about this. I better start preparing to move. And then we go through the change. And is it easy? No, it's painful for her because she's moving. But it's okay because we've communicated it. We've walked through it. And, and I help my family understand change isn't bad. It's just what it is. It's change. I think a lot of people think change is bad. Well, change is bad if we don't communicate and if we don't prepare for it. And if we're uh, not very sensitive to people and we, we lead by force, but that's not good leadership anyway. So does that answer that? I, you had a question, and, and, I, and we're, we're at noon, so um, I, I want to, I know you, you both guys had, had your hands up, so why don't we take your question and then why don't we, uh, why don't we break after that? We'll be around for a while after that, but, but go ahead and ask your question. We'll do that and then we'll release everybody and, and uh, we, can, we can do that.
So I'll, I'll tap on this and then uh, pass to these guys. First of all, there's a, a misunderstood concept in the United States and maybe in the world, and that is that as the leader, you're supposed to be popular. So die to that notion because you're not popular. Uh, and, and here's the second thing. If everybody likes you, you probably are not a good leader. So what makes an effective leader is when you know what's right and you take your people to what's right. Correct? Here's where we have a, a real problem in the military, and I'm going to guess that it's probably true for you guys as well in, in business. Most Americans do not want to confront. It's not popular. But confronting is a neutral word. It's not a negative word. It's a neutral word. We have to die to the fact that as leaders, we have to confront. That's our job. If I don't confront, then I can't lead, right? So if you have a righteous standard that you know is right, that you have, there are certain things that are non-negotiables, then you go to people and you say, I mean, we got it earlier again this morning. I love how the word of God comes back to help us. We do it with gentleness and respect, right? So I say, you know, Joe, I love the fact that you, you come to work and you want to make a difference, but you got to stop cooking the books because it's illegal. <laughs> and we're going to go to jail. And, and Joe, here's the deal. I like you as a person, but if you do this one more time, you're fired because what you're doing is wrong. Do you understand it? And did I make myself clear? Now, am I popular? Probably not. Not with Joe, but do I care? No. If I do care, then I need to, to get into a, I need to join the Navy, I guess. I got to go somewhere else. So, I didn't say that. So, the deal is, you have to have, I'm, I'm going to use a very secular, off-mic phrase. You have to have a pair of you-know-what. Because if you don't, you shouldn't be leading, Right? So uh, to a couple of questions, I've, I've thought about this as a response. Growing up in Illinois, we got a healthy dose of Abraham Lincoln. And there's a book uh, called uh, Lincoln on Leadership. I don't know, some of you may have, have seen it. And um, he, he went through, what, eight or ten generals before he got to Grant. And he, he would, when he would vent and be angry, uh, he would write a letter. And a lot of times he would never send that letter. But he would say all the things he wanted to say, you know, in a moment of anger. Um, and uh, there are many other examples, but, but he, the, he went through each general, tested their mettle, was looking for action. Usually, this was sort of the, the common theme, wouldn't get what he was looking for. He'd, he'd change things up. And he would be very clear in terms of communicating, first, his expectation, and then second, the result and, and what else he was going to do. But I just thought it was interesting because sometimes I, I have been angry at outcomes. And um, I, I try to control that anger because self-control is a fruit of the spirit. But um, I, I liked what he did in a number of instances where, all right, well, here it all is. Put it in writing, put it in the desk, and it never gets sent. Now, he may take action from that, but I thought that was an interesting example. Thank you all for joining us this morning. Uh, it's been a good session. We'll be around a little bit after any other questions.